everyone. It is I, Andy, producer and co-host of the Vox Podcast. And why are you hearing my voice instead of Mike? Well, let me tell you why. It is 11 o'clock on the West Coast, and I needed to edit a podcast so you guys would get it first thing in the morning on Monday morning for your drive, for your workout, for your morning walk with the dog, for your morning coffee on your balcony overlooking a lovely beach sunset. In the case of Mike's uh, early morning, maybe sitting in his uh, new sunroom overlooking his backyard in the Midwest of Ohio, whatever it is. Point being is that it's 11 p.m. and I do not have a recorded intro from Mike. So here I am giving it to you. This is it. Um, I've gotten so many questions and comments about when is Andy coming back on the show. Here I am. Uh, I hope this satisfies your palate just for a little bit longer. Um, Mike is still getting a bit settled in Columbus, Ohio, um, just after his move here in a few uh, a few weeks. Um, you might have seen him uh, pop up on the uh, Facebook page uh, doing a little bit of Q&A, talking about uh, his move, uh, maybe on the Vox community page, talking about some of the same stuff. But anyhow, I miss him. Um, he says he misses me. I believe it, but apparently you guys miss us together um, on this show most, and absolutely, I'm looking forward uh, to getting back into a conversation with him with so many things. I mean, three weeks, uh, we're going on three weeks now where we haven't had a chance to sit down and do a podcast together, and there is so much that has happened. It's unbelievable. So um, I, I could just go and go and go, but I'm not. So for you today, of course, we have episode three, uh, Do Not Stare at Me from the Sex, Love, and God series. Um, as Mike has mentioned, um, he would nuance a lot of these episodes um, a little bit differently. This is uh, four years now, um, four years ago, I should say, that he had originally uh, offered um, uh, this content. And it's fantastic. Uh, however, though, we've learned so much. He's learned so much. And there's just things that he would have uh, done a little bit differently. So um, all I have to say, oh, I- I'm sitting here watching um, Happy Gilmore in the background while I edit this. Let me let me see what part of the movie we're at. What are you talking about? Your grandmother hasn't paid her taxes in over a decade. What? Grandma? Oh, I love this movie. So good. I would have, but I didn't have any money. <laughs> Where are you taking all their stuff? I'm not taking your stuff. <laughs> oh, anyhow. So, uh, man, it's it's just the best movie, merging hockey and golf into the same sport. Oh, it is it is the bestest. So, anyhow, thanks for wasting a little bit of this time with me. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys, and I look forward to finally getting a chance to hang out with Mike and talk with him on a show. So, hopefully that'll come soon. Um uh, last thing, you know, thank you guys uh, so much for a bunch of new Patreon supporters that have jumped on. Uh, we love the support. If you didn't know, um, you can actually financially support the podcast. Uh, it's at patreon.com slash foxpodcast. And uh, we can send you, we'll send you uh, books. We'll send you um, access to our Vox Podcast uh, community group um, where uh, on Facebook where we're doing just different uh, conversations and a little bit of different access to things. But anyhow, uh, if you want to do that, that'd be awesome. But here we go. Episode three of Sex, Love, and God. Do not stare at me. Good evening. So great to see you. We are glad that you are here. And um, if you're uh, with us for the first time tonight, welcome. If you're watching uh, online, we are glad that you are not only able but willing uh, to t- participate in the conversation with us. Uh, we want to welcome you, and the goal of this time, as we have been saying, has been to simply uh, remind ourselves 
that what our culture teaches about uh, relationships and sexuality, that isn't the authoritative word on these subjects. In fact, the hardest people to set free are the people who uh, don't know that they're slaves. And so we just want to remind ourselves of the slaver. Because our culture, by the way, is a culture of slaves who tell us they're free. That's our world. Our world is a world uh, of slaves who tell us they're free and who look at freedom in Christ uh, as slavery. And so we just want to invert that and remind ourselves of this big gracious, beautiful message that the Jesus who is the Christ comes and announces. Reconsider the way that you're living because the kingdom, the reign, the government of God is close to you. And we believe that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, what you did last night or this morning, all of that is immaterial next to the grace and the truth of this Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Song of Solomon chapter 1. We, um, we're going get, to get through verse 8 tonight, and it will be very, very exciting. Several people have been asking, so how long is this going to go? Um, we'll get through verse 8 of a six-chapter book, and so we'll, we'll just kind of see. I, abs- I, I, I have been getting uh, flooded with uh, emails some critical, some questioning, uh, some very positive, and um, I love this one. I am 72 years old and have wanted to hear this teaching since I was a teenager and longing to know and understand in order to apply God's standards to my life. I am sitting here praising God after listening to the first two videos and am praying that this series will touch many, many lives. And so one of the things that is so beautiful to me looking out upon you all, uh, is that it is very, very intergenerational. These aren't issues that disappear as you grow older, nor are they issues that uh, are uncommon, uh, though they seem that way when you're young. And so we are so very grateful that you'd be here. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. She speaks... She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your oils, your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. Last week we looked at what it meant to have a name. A name is that bit of a, of a guy that's etched in stone that won't change. Your name in these days, stood for your character. And so she finds this guy attractive and loves kissing him, but he's got a name that she finds pleasing too. No wonder the women, young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, we don't know who these are or why they're commenting, but they... Declare, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Now the image between love and wine and kisses and wine is that, that lovemaking is intoxicating. You get swept up. It's euphoric. And one of the points we've been trying to make uh, is that of the 613 commandments of the Bible, commandment number one is be fruitful and multiply. And that God chose to have that happen in a very fun and unique way. And so this, this sense of... The, the point that we'll keep making is that you and I 
were sexual before we were sinful. I cannot stress this point enough. Your sexual desires are part of humanness, not sinfulness. Now, they've been warped and need to be redirected, and on that, I'm sure we can all agree. But human beings were sexual before they were sinful. And so, this church teaching that somehow says that conversations about relationships, sexuality, arousal, attraction, intercourse, fulfillment, that those are somehow not properly church topics, that's just, that's just false and harmful. And so, the song doesn't start with a nice warm intro. We were sitting on a park bench, uh, you know, sharing prayer requests. It, it starts, <laughs> although it's wonderful, it starts with, your lovemaking is more intoxicating than wine. You not only have a compelling kiss, you have a compelling name. The friends say, we affirm this. She replies, how right the young ladies are to adore you. And then she says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. If you uh, were here last week, dark isn't a racial thing. It's the tone of skin. In those days, if you worked outside, you were considered lower status. If you had fine skin, delicate, untouched by the sun, that was considered the ideal. That meant you were of high status enough to not have to work out in the fields. In, in, in art, from uh, so these sorts of time periods, the, the women are always portrayed with lighter skin than the men. Because for the men working outside, that was a fine thing. But for women to work outside... That was symbolic of very low status. And so she says, dark am I, yet lovely. Here's the paradox. There are parts of me that I like, and there's a part of me I can't stand. Dark like the tents of Kedar, which uh, usually tents were made out of really black, coarse goat hair. Okay, so this was black. Like the tent curtains of Solomon, which we think were a deep purple. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. And I know it's hard for Southern Californians to actually appreciate this, right? Whereas we see tan as, as attractive. Back then, tan was considered a mark of very low status, something that was to be hidden or apologized for. So she says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun, my mother's sons, my brothers, were angry with me and made me take care of the family vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. She uses, and she does this all throughout the poem, she uses vineyard in two different ways. She says, my own family vineyard, a literal vineyard, this was the family business I had to take care of, which meant working outside because my brothers were angry with me. But my own vineyard, the second way she uses the idea of vineyard is in reference to her body and sexuality. So very often, you'll see it throughout the poem, she speaks of her vineyard or vineyard or vineyard. And she'll either mean a literal vineyard or she'll mean her body. And so she says, and there's a Hebrew wordplay here. She says, my brother's sons were angry. The word angry and the word darkened are the same word in Hebrew. So, and you could translate it scorched. My brother's sons were scorched with me, therefore I was scorched by the sun. So it's the idea that, that well, we have no mention of a father here, but it's the idea that she was forced to work outside and as a result, 
I'm lovely, but don't stare at me and judge me by the darkness of my skin. That is the plea. Now what is wonderful is that 3,000 years later, we don't struggle with body image. We have been (laughs) fully delivered. Go ahead and turn your eyes to the screen. Um, I just wanted to make a video to ask if I was pretty or not. There's a lot of bullying these days, and I've been bullied basically my whole life since like kindergarten. And I wanted to know, like, am I pretty? Like, I had my friends tell me that I'm not ugly and that stuff, but they're friends, so they're probably lying. But I truly view myself as like this wicked, ugly, fat thing. And I really hate this. I am just asking all you guys, please comment below about this, but am I pretty or ugly? Because I kind of think I'm ugly. I mean, you could tell the complete truth. I wouldn't care because I get called ugly and pretty a lot. Um, and it's usually my voice. And well, my parents call me pretty and some boys call me ugly, but I don't care. They're boys. I have a question. People tell me this all the time, so... I don't know. Is it true? People say I'm ugly. So, tell me. Am I? What sort of screwed up world causes 11-year-old girls to go on YouTube to have one of the most fundamental questions a young lady can ask answered. Narcissistic? Well, maybe. Or how about lied to beyond belief? And when you read the comments, I mean, forgive my language, but yeah, you're effing ugly. Die, bitch. You should kill yourself. What sort of world is this exactly? See, there's a word that the scriptures use to describe a culture like this. It's the word Gehenna. We translate it hell. Our ideas of beauty are more demonic than we can possibly imagine. Unless, unless we think this is purely a feminine issue. Boys, are we not confronted by the same airbrushed images of dudes with six-packs and traps and delts I see the same people when I go to the gym wondering wondering how many hours it takes to get a body like that. Knowing that in 20 years that body will start breaking down and whatever sense of worth and status and power you held in that body will now disappear. What kind of world 
I mean, evidently, a 3,000-year-old love poem is relevant because it speaks of issues that are fundamental to human existence. And so we have a culture just like the culture this young lady was raised in. There's an ideal of beauty. She doesn't meet it. 3,000 years later, there's an ideal of beauty. We don't meet it. Now, I want to spend, before we get back to the text, I want to spend just a little time talking about how jacked up the world is. Because, like I said before, the hardest people to set free are the people who don't know they're enslaved. And this is an area of such demonic oppression that I want to spend some time convincing us we're enslaved. Now, some of this you may have heard from me before. Indulge me for maybe 10 minutes, if you would. Because a certain thing happened in human history that altered the course of even American culture a couple thousand years later. Right as the Persian culture was crumbling, there was a man named Alexander the Great who stormed through the world, conquered the known world, and he had a goal. We've talked about this before. His goal was to Hellenize the world, not just to conquer it, but to turn it Greek. Alexander was a marketing genius before marketing was even a word. Because what Alexander would do is he would subjugate a people and then he would seek to woo them to the Greek way of looking at the world. Now, the Greek way of looking at the world is fascinating because as one of their philosophers said very early, man is the measure of all things. To the Hellenists, Human beings are the center of the universe. Human wisdom is the highest truth. Human performance, the best performance. And the naked human body, the most compelling beauty. Alexander was brilliant at spreading these ideals. What he would do is he would conquer a people and then he would start building. He would build temples where you could worship the Greek gods. He would build theaters where the scandalous and almost pornographic exploits of the Greek gods would be performed for the masses. They, they built something called a gymnasium, and we think a gymnasium is a place where you work out the body. For the Greeks, yes, you worked out the body, but these were institutions of higher learning. If you were young, you would, learn, you would go to school and you would learn the Greek language. As you got older, you would read the Greek writers, learn math and music. And still older, you would learn Greek drama, Greek sculpture, Greek art. Gymnasiums had a big open area in the middle. Classrooms around the, the open area. And, and the, the, the Greeks... They thought the naked human body was the most glorious thing. And so you would, uh, you would be, you would compete naked, right? This is what you would do in athletic contests. And in fact, there was so much pressure. The Greeks looked at Jews who circumcised themselves, at least the men, and they thought it was a disfiguring of beauty. So if you were Jewish and you wanted to participate in the games, you would have reverse circumcision. Don't even ask me how that happened. You would have reverse circumcision in order to participate. 
The thing I want you to know is that to the Greeks, wisdom, a sound mind, and a symmetrical, beautiful body were the things that were most valued. And so, if you, uh, and we could take a detour onto Greek art and sculpture, and you could see this over and over and over. Now, people had always been concerned with appearance, but now, now there was a military machine behind this. And so, Alexander conquered the world in order to turn it Greek and central to the Greek ideal. In fact, oh my goodness, this, this, if I can find this quote. Well, I can't find it. So let me go from memory, which is a scary thing. But, but this particular Greek philosopher said, the only thing worth loving is beauty. To be beautiful is to be loved. To not be beautiful is to be unloved. So what the Greeks did is they took an ideal of human spirit, human body, human accomplishment, and held it up. And then they began pushing to the margins anyone who didn't measure up. Now, if you're wondering where this is going and why it's relevant, it's relevant for this reason. There became a practice censured uh, and affirmed, excuse me, not censured, but affirmed by uh, Greek religion, Greek morality, ultimately codified into Roman law that was called the exposure of infants. This is where Hellenism takes you. If you hold up an ideal of what, the, of what human being should look like, act like, and be like, what began to happen is any human being that didn't measure up, they just got rid of. So, for instance, a letter dated, go ahead and fire up the iPad, a letter dated from 1 BC from a man called Hilarion to his wife. He'd gone to Alexandria and was writing about, a house, about household affairs. He said, know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain there. I beg you and beseech of you to take care of the little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. If good luck to you, you have a child. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. Just like, make sure you get milk. The grocery store, I mean, just nothing. It was, it was, you take a system that, that, that obsesses over one ideal, and then very naturally what you do is you start pushing to the margins anyone who doesn't measure up. Seneca, we slaughter a mad ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who were born weakly and deformed, we drown. Socrates, for those of you Bill and Ted fans, <laughs> took a, yeah, yeah, evidently there's a sequel in the works, which, you know, why not? Bill and Ted in middle age, it'll be awesome. So here was the argument. The children of inferior parents or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place. Now, to expose an infant means simply that you would bring it to the father. The father had power of life and death. If the father received the child, it would stay. If the father turned his back on the child, they would take it outside the city gates and leave it to die. Okay, in some cases, they'd actively murder the child, but in other cases, they would just expose it to the elements, to the animals. 
This is what Hellenism looks like when you take it to an extreme. In fact, there was one manual written called How to Recognize the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. Okay, do you understand? People were confused. How do I know if I should expose my offspring or not? So the, the, the book is How to Know if You Have an Infant That's Worth Keeping. And he goes through and, and he says, well, it should be perfect in all of its parts, limbs, and senses and have passages that are not obstructed, including ears, note, uh, nose, throat, urethra, anus. Its natural movement should be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs should bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate. So on, so on, so on. And then he sanctioned murdering imperfect babies by saying, and by conditions contrary to any of those just listed, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. Aristotle wrote, as to the raising and exposure of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Now, the reason we go into this history is to say, many years before you and I were ever on the scene, there was a movement dedicated to the upholding of a specific ideal of beauty, art, civilization. Alexander was a marketing genius. He would leave in his wake not just the conquered people, but all of the stuff that reinforced the Greek ideal. And the Greek ideal, the center of it, was human beings. Only the beautiful are loved. What do we do with the rest of them? Well, if you have an infant that doesn't measure up, you get rid of it. Now, let me ask you a question. Conservative estimate is that 15 million girls starve, binge and purge themselves, have clinically diagnosed eating disorders. Is Hellenism alive and well? $12 billion was spent in 2008 on unnecessary elective cosmetic surgeries. Is Hellenism alive and well? Can you check out at the grocery counter and not be bombarded with images that you know are airbrushed, but are so prevalent, shouting to you again and again and again, a man looks like this and a sexy woman looks like this. In fact, there was a movement in early in the 20th century to eradicate the defectives in the gene pool, of which my son, who has Down syndrome, would be considered one of them, by forcibly sterilizing young ladies so they could not have children, or castrating young men who were considered defective. Now you can think, well, that was then, we're more civilized. Really? Really? There's a movement now to discontinue services to children with Down syndrome because if you're going to choose to have one, that's on you. 92% of people who receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome in utero abort. Is Hellenism alive and well? You bet. So, on the one hand... One of the reasons why 11-year-old girls go on YouTube and ask if they're beautiful is because the legacy of Alexander and his Greek ideals is still with us. But the other reason that this happens is because the standards of beauty keep changing. 
By the time you embody whatever current definition of beauty is, it'll be different. So, you start an early culture. Who could, who could possibly have a waist that size? Right? And, 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 then, and then we went, and it got to be so that plump was actually beautiful. I yearned for those days, personally. <laughs> Right? So you, you have all of these. And then you hit the 20s. And, you know, we all know what those were like. So, but notice the standards of beauty and how they change. Right? So you have, you have very... And then you get into the 30s, the 40s. You have these very different images of what was beautiful. Some of you remember these, right? Lauren Bacall, is that who that is? Okay. See, Boom. Right? Then, and, then, and, then you, and then you get Marilyn. And she became kind of the defining picture of beauty for an entire generation. Then you're now into the 60s. And you start having some crazy hair. Right? <laughs> and, then, and then you start seeing very skinny starts making an appearance. Right? Grace Jones. Diana Ross. Now we're in the 70s. Now you get this sort of disco look. Farrah Fawcett. Right? There's another pinup for another generation. Then you get into the 80s. My goodness, and big hair makes a comeback. Right? I know, I know, I know. I know. Era of the supermodel. You get into the 90s. 90210. Then you start, then you start seeing impossibly thin people. Impossibly. Right? Who can measure up to that? And now we're in the era of Photoshop. So even the pictures we see, we can't trust. So here's a before and after. Here's somebody that's already beautiful being, having to be made more so. I mean, how sick and twisted is that? We take our beautiful people and modify them. Right? Notice Katie Couric. How much younger and thinner this was classic. 19, early 1990s. There was this big Esquire pictorial. What Michelle Pfeiffer needs is absolutely nothing. She is that beautiful. And then there was this really subversive sort of marketing, uh, anti-marketing campaign that captured the bill for her retouching. So the girl that needed absolutely nothing said... We had to spend $1,500 on cleanup complexion, soften eyeline, soften smile line, add color to lips, trim chin, remove neckline, soften line under earlobe, add highlights to earrings, add blush to cheek, clean up neckline, remove stray hair, remove hair strands from dress, adjust color, da da da. Total $1,500. So evidently, what Michelle Pfeiffer needed back then was what? Work. So 3,000 years ago, a young lady says, Dark am I, yet lovely. Do not stare at me because my son has been scorched. My brothers were scorched towards me. 3,000 years later, that same issue. And if you're not overwhelmed yet with data, a couple more things. And then we'll get back to the text. One American survey, 81% of 10-year-old girls had already dieted at least once. 
A recent Swedish study found that 25% of seven-year-old girls had dieted to lose weight. Some girls as young as six in Japan, 41% of elementary school girls thought they were fat. By age 13, at least 50% of girls are significantly unhappy about their appearance. The average American model is 5'4", or excuse me, the average American woman is 5'4", 140 pounds. The average fashion model is 5'11", 105. Fashion models are thinner than 98% of American women. 91% of women in a recent survey on a college campus said they've attempted to control their weight through dieting. Now this, I'm going to take my time on this. This was a study done in 1999 with the people of Fiji, okay? The the researchers chose to study Fiji before and after the introduction of Western television programming, okay? Now pay close attention. Before Western TV arrived, most... Uh, of those in Fiji subscribed to traditional ideas of beauty, larger bodies, bodies that would have been classified as obese in the West, were considered the most attractive. They were seen as evidence of a person's wealth and high status. Slim bodies were thought to look sickly and were even seen as indications that the person suffered from a lack of food or friends. (laughs) Only three years after the introduction of Western television programs... The number of girls and women who reported vomiting to control their weight increased fivefold. 74% of girls reported feeling too fat. 62% reported dieting in the last month. Furthermore, girls who watched more television were more likely to evaluate their bodies negatively. One study in America indicated that 16% of employers refused to hire obese women, no matter how qualified they are. Thin women get paid more than fat women. Attractive children are more popular, both with classmates and teachers. Attractive applicants have a better chance of getting jobs and receiving higher salaries. So let me ask you, is Hellenism alive and well? You bet. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. I want to talk about the kind of world we find ourselves in and how it is exactly Jesus aims to get us out. Genesis 1, we are here all the time if you're part of our community. God creates with great order, design, and purpose. And there's a certain rhythm and flow to the poem of Genesis 1, and then it gets interrupted when he comes to human beings. God said, let us make, verse 26, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that human beings may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals. Rule here doesn't mean strip, mine, and pollute. It means govern well. So God created humanity in His own image. 
In the image of God, He created the male and female. He created them. Brothers and sisters, the first human beings were stamped with God's image. Now what that means exactly is that however faintly, they echoed certain characteristics of what God Himself was like. And they were given work and purpose and meaning and significance. We find later in the account to participate with God in the governance over the created order. But they are fundamentally image bearers. And what that means for the Scripture account is that how you treat people is how you treat the Creator. Loving your neighbor and loving God are the same thing, according to Jesus. In fact, there's a command given later in Genesis that says, listen, don't murder. (laughs) Because if you do, your life will be taken. Why? Because you've just killed someone in God's image. In the book of James, there's a comment about slander and gossip and the the using of our speech to harm people. And, And James just kind of has this line that says, my brothers, it should not be that with the same tongue you praise God and you curse men who are made in God's image. Now, I have sitting before me a card for my sweet Hannah. I is on the front. Love you. I love you too, Daddy from Hannah. Now let me ask you, artistically, is that a good eye? No, it's not a good eye. It's not. Hold this up to a Monet or a Picasso or something. Right? How's that heart? Well, I know it's a heart, but it's a little non-symmetrical, right? And the U? Clearly traced. Right? (laughs) I have boxes full of very poor art. Why? Because what they create and my appreciation of it reflects how I feel about them, right? So, I keep the creation because I love the Creator. So I keep this even though... I mean, I can't tell you how many bad presents. <laughs> right? And any father or mother here will tell you the, thing, the little finger pot you made in first grade... It's buried somewhere, but we have it. We can't get rid of it. We're compelled to keep your first handwriting, the hair from your first haircut. We're compared to keep it all. Why? Because they came from you. Anything you make is of value to us because we love you. And the idea, human beings made in God's image, is that how you treat other image bearers is how you treat the God in whose image they're made. Very, very simple. Adam and Eve were created to live in a garden called Eden. Eden is a Hebrew word that means delight. How fun was that? The scriptures tell us they were naked and unashamed and had to obey a command that said, be fruitful and multiply. Sounds like a pretty good combo. But the big point for our purposes is this. Adam and Eve weren't wondering where to find meaning and significance. They weren't posting videos wondering if they were attractive. They were of value simply because they were made in the image of their Creator. End of story. It used to be that that was enough. 
Then, as you know, Genesis chapter 3, flip there. Now it's no longer enough. A tempter comes, invites these first humans into disobedience. If you're here and you're like not a fan of the Bible or you're going, really, a talking snake? You really want me to buy this? We can have the talking snake conversation another time. I'd be glad to have that conversation. But the point we're making is somewhat independent of whether or not you believe in a talking snake or not. Okay? So just set that aside. And I just want to continually acknowledge there are people who are either in here or listening who may not buy the whole thing. And that is just fine. That is just fine. The conversation is still worth having regardless. And so brothers and sisters... These first human beings get tempted into disobedience. Verse 6. When the woman saw that eating this particular fruit, the only fruit that was of which they were commanded to not eat, when, when the woman saw that that particular fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, they ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. And for the first time, human beings felt shame. So they covered themselves. This, in the words of our theologians, is called the fall. It's called the broken image. The image we were made to bear, we still bear. We're still made in God's image. But now that image is warped. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Now we're going to start weaving some of these threads together. Romans chapter 3. Second part of verse 22. There is no difference. Paul, missionary in the first century, is writing to a church made up of Jewish believers in Jesus and non-Jewish believers in Jesus. And he says, there's no difference between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to say, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now before we get on to that second part, I want to just spend some time on the first part. The first part is Paul's reflection on Genesis 3. The first part is simply saying this, no matter who you are, or what your background is, the image of God in us, though we still have it, is now bent. It's twisted. And instead of it being enough to simply be made in the image of God, now we've got an insatiable hunger for meaning, for significance. Now we've got this drive, this emptiness that drives us to perform and to get validation and to be seen as beautiful or worthy or to find everything we were meant to find in the eyes of our Creator, now we seek to find it in each other. And the problem is no one's big enough or beautiful enough or good enough to fill the hole. And so what happens is image bearers just keep consuming other image bearers, looking for the validation that now sits at the center of who we are, instead of a validation that comes from simply being human. See, we can't even picture what that is like. 
That's like speaking a foreign language to us. Now, all it means to be human is to be approved of or to reach a certain level of satisfaction or to have your urges fulfilled or to have a certain level of safety and comfort. Now what it means to be human is something other than being made in the image of a Creator God. That's what it means to be bent and to be broken. And in such a world where image bearers are no longer satisfied with their image bearing... Hellenism can flourish. Because now, it's not enough just to be human. Now, you've got to be attractive. You've got to be smart. You've got to be athletic. You've got to have money. You've got to be skinny. You've got to be muscular. You've got to be adored. And all of our beautiful people, they tell us that even when you are adored, it's not enough. And so we... Look, not only practically at a culture where 11-year-old girls go on the internet to ask if they're beautiful, we look theologically at a story where human beings find themselves with a broken image. Where instead of being satisfied, and, and this, I know this sounds so cliche, and I hate that I'm a pastor and that I'm supposed to say these things, but can you imagine a world where a mirror was simply an opportunity to praise God for what He's made. I mean, you can't even picture that. Can you imagine a world where getting old isn't a bad thing? Can you imagine a world where diversity of shapes and sizes is beautiful? See, that, in a small way, is what these redeemed people called the church are supposed to be about. They're supposed to reconstitute image bearers who honor each other because they love the Creator whose image they bear. So when the church, and I'm a huge fan, simply reinforces the cultural stereotypes of beauty for men and women, We just contribute to hell on earth. Which is what this is. Go if you would to 2 Corinthians. Okay, I've got maybe 15 minutes more. Are you guys hanging in? And then we'll do some, some Q's and some A's. I'm already anticipating the masturbation questions. I'm already. We, no matter what we talk about, that subject will be asked about. I'm positive. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. Paul The same Paul is writing to another church and notice what he says about the image of Jesus' followers. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord Jesus' glory are being transformed into His what? Into God's, into Jesus' image. In other words, part of what Jesus does is He restores the broken image. 
Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we're going to bring this together in just a moment, so stick with me. One of my favorite verses in the entire scripture, verse uh, 17. If you can actually get to the place where you believe this, not as an article of doctrine, but as a new reality, now we're on to something. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Now, in the original language, it just simply says, if in Christ, new creation. And the word for creation is related to some of the words used for creation in Genesis 1. In other words, the same power that spoke the universe into existence now speaks new creation over those in Jesus. Now, does that mean all of a sudden they are beautiful according to this culture, arbitrary cultural standards of beauty? No, but it means that the image is now being restored so that you have a basis a different basis from which to determine your worth, value, and significance than what it is that you look like. Do you see what I'm saying? No? I mean, let me try it this way, because that was underwhelming. (laughs) God You know, God created 5,000 species of frogs. That clears it up. How about 400,000 species of wildflowers? How about 12,000 species of ants? Evidently, the creator of the universe loves it. When everything isn't the same. And any system of thought that says there is one ideal is straight from the pit of hell and is working against the purposes of the creator God of the universe. That's the point. But you say, well, how do I resist the 2,000 commercial images all with airbrushed ideals staring at me? I say it was the broken image of God in you that led you to determine to find your worth in what others think of you. And now, as part of the work of this Jesus, your image is being reconstituted so that you have meaning, value, and significance beyond whether or not you're pretty or ugly. God doesn't want to sit there and say, you know what? You are gorgeous. Absolutely. He's not giving you a self-esteem talk. He's not having you look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're gorgeous. That may be helpful, but He's doing something far more radical. He wants to take the ugly, pretty conversation and destroy what makes that a conversation to begin with. People who yearn for the validation that comes from the higher opinions of others. He simply wants to say, if you could actually come to the place where you believe that you are loved, delighted in, and affirmed, in simply your image bearing, and for those in Christ a step further, being reconstituted in your image bearing, then, whether or not you're pretty or handsome becomes secondary in importance. 
there's this great picture of the end of the Bible where every tongue, every tribe, every nation sits gathered worshiping. Our God loves diversity. So if you're here and you have red hair or black hair or purple hair or no hair, If you're here and you're tall, if you're here and you're short, you're here and you're fat, you're here and you're thin. You're here, you're here and you're thin and you feel like you're fat, or you're here and you're fat and you think you're thin. <laughs> the work of Jesus isn't just convincing you that you now measure up to the arbitrary cultural standards. Do you understand this? Jesus isn't your life coach. He's not interested in improving your self-esteem. He's interested in wrecking your life so that you build it on an entirely different foundation. And when that happens, questions of beauty or ugliness won't be as important. Now back to Song of Songs, and we'll end with this. So this young lady... Verse... uh, Six, chapter one. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the family vineyards, but my own body, my own skin, my own vineyard, I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, Where you graze your flock and where you will rest your sheep at midday. In other words, I'd like to know where you're going to be around noon. (laughs) There was a song about this or something. And then she says this. Why should I be like a veiled woman? beside the flocks of your friends. Now, some debate over what exactly this is a reference to. But if you had a large flock, you had many shepherds. And trailing behind the shepherds as they would graze their sheep were veiled women who would offer themselves in prostitution to the shepherds. So we have a woman who has declared... that she's, she's got a man. His kisses are more intoxicating than wine. His lovemaking is fantastic. But he also has a name that is pleasing. And here we meet a woman who has a fundamental insecurity who simply says, why should I be like the prostitutes who walk behind the shepherds? In other words... I think what she's saying is even though I have this insecurity, I simply won't compromise. In fact, she says this beautiful thing. Oh my goodness. I love this. Young ladies, I want you to memorize this line right here. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Okay, that's the one you're going to memorize. (laughs) 
Guys, you can skip that memorizing that one. It'd be a little odd for you to use that in the first person. But here's what she's saying. She says, verse 10 of chapter 8. I'm a wall, my breasts are like towers, thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyards to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. Here's the line. But my own vineyard is mine to give. And she's using vineyard in two ways, right? The literal vineyard that Solomon had, who rents out, he rents out to tenants. And then she says of her own sexuality, I don't rent this out. It's mine to give. In other words, ladies, it is absolutely possible to be insecure about the way that you look and utterly unwilling to compromise, even in the face of that insecurity. You are worth dying for. That's what it means to say the man is the head of the household. Until a man lays down his life, he hasn't fully emulated Jesus. So you're worth dying for is the implication. But you live in a world where when you go clothes shopping, there are only certain kinds of cuts and certain kinds of mannequins. You live in a world where you walk through the checkout line and you just are bombarded with all the beautiful people in their bikinis and all the tips on losing weight. You live in a world where it is just accepted that men now consume skin. You live in a world where you have unbelievable pressure to dress in certain ways and to act in certain ways to seek the validation that your heart is yearning for and having others consume you. And against that demonic world, we say, you are made in the divine image. And in Christ, that image is actually being reconstituted so that at some point, a mirror isn't your enemy. At some point, you won't need the validation that comes from having a guy in your life. You may think, well, that's impossible. I can introduce you to some single friends of mine who would disagree with that. I would introduce you to some married friends of mine who still struggle. The answer isn't find a guy or find a girl and get married. The answer is to build something else than what our world says to build. Let's do a few questions and then I want to close this in kind of a unique way tonight. I'm a Christian girl raised in the church all my life. I started sleeping around and now I'm addicted. I feel beautiful and fulfilled from it, even though I know guys just use me for my body. How do I get out and not feel lonely without it? I feel wanted in the moment and I feel awful after. Boy, isn't that true? Nobody should ever say that sin isn't fun. 
right? I mean, people, people, we've tried telling our teenagers, hey, 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 yeah, don't do that because you could, she could get pregnant or uh, you could get a disease or you'll feel, it'll feel horrible. I'm not sure it feels horrible. So the answer can't be, hey, stop it. And here's all the negative reasons why. I think you've answered your own question. First of all, I love that you text that in, whoever you are. But secondly, even though guys use me for my body, See, I think that reflects the way that you see you. And I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm just talking about, yes, it feels good in the moment, and I feel awful after. Why does it feel awful after? What is that telling you? Because it is possible to have sex and for it to not feel awful afterwards. It is possible to enter into relationships and realize, like, and maybe I'm going slightly off topic and I'll come back, but... It's, I feel so compelled to say this. Growing up struggling with pornography and masturbation, I had trained my body to feed on lust in order to achieve orgasm. Right? I needed that. You know, and, and the thing about lust is that it's so awful, it suffers from the law of diminishing returns. So you, it needs more to achieve that kind of same rush. And then I got married. And when my wife and I were dating, oh, the romantic just crackled in the air, right? I mean, we just couldn't be in the same room. She could not keep her hands off of me. And it was awesome. And then we got married. And what went away? The lust. Because lust is fueled by the illicit. Right? So for the first time, I had to learn how to be fueled by love sexually. And the delight in a body that I've seen before and touched before, to delight in a body that isn't as beautiful as other bodies, to delight in a body over and over and over again, it took me a long time to figure out how to do that. Because for me, it had always been fueled by the illicit. It was so exciting to dabble in that gray area when we were dating. And it's so exciting when you're sleeping around. You feel so wanted. But deep down, it does nothing except make the darkness grow. And I just want to paint a different picture that says it's possible, but you've got to fight to be fully naked and unashamed again. To feel wanted for more than what you do to a guy with your body. And until that picture gets more compelling than the picture you currently have, no set of thou shalt nots is going to convince you. Because in the moment, it feels wonderful and I feel wanted. But I promise you this. The longer you let that go on, the harder it will be to ever trust what true intimacy looks and feels like. And as somebody who's tasted a bit of both, 
I can say the one is worth fighting for. Next question. Great question. Oh, bless your heart. How would God view plastic surgery? Is it saying the way he created us isn't good enough? I think there are some good reasons for plastic surgery. Really? I mean, my kid has braces. Now, that's not surgery. But why, why would I do that? What if, what if my kid had ears that came out this way? Right? I mean, would it be wrong to kind of put his ears back? I mean, I think if somebody's in an accident. So I wouldn't just hardcore say, no, never. But I would say this. It seems ironic, doesn't it? That the plastic surgery to be had always conforms us to the pornographic images that men obsess over. What's that saying to all the Botox and the augmentation? I think it's simply saying image bearing isn't enough. Now, if you're here and you've had plastic surgery, well, you're certainly not alone. (laughs) And should you go in now and feel ashamed or have it undone or whatever? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, I'm on a diet. All right, I'm down 25 pounds, believe it or not. No, quit it. Quit it, quit it, quit it. That was too much encouragement, you guys, all right? (laughs) And I've been horribly ashamed about how I look because I'm in a very public sort of role. Is it wrong for me to diet? No. I want to be healthy for my family. I want to look better. Absolutely. But I've tried dieting from the place of shame before. And that's always failed. For whatever reason, God's got me at a place where it doesn't matter as much anymore and therefore it's easier. I I can't explain it. It's the most paradoxical thing. It's like I'm actually comfortable kind of with how I look and so now it's actually easier. It's building on a whole different foundation. My point simply is this. This isn't a set of rules. This is two different stories. Your life only makes sense in a story. So one story is that you have value and worth and significance based on what you look like, what you do, what you accomplish. And the recognition given to you from others on the basis of those things. The other story is creation, fall, and redemption. And we want to place sexuality in that story. Created good, bent and twisted, but totally able to be redeemed. Does redemption look differently? Oh my goodness, yes. We've said it before. We have some gay brothers and sisters who find it impossible to change their orientations. If they've placed their confidence in Jesus of Nazareth, I fully believe they are welcomed into His kingdom. I do. Now, the Scripture speaks about those who live in persistent and antagonistic rebellion as a rejection of the offer of this Jesus, but that's a separate thing. And that can happen with anybody with any sin. But I firmly believe that redemption, salvation, those things don't always look like my desires change instantaneously. Sometimes it's the hard work of sanctification that God invites us into. I wish I didn't ever desire porn. There are times I do. I spent years training 
my body to respond in certain ways. And our culture makes that increasingly easy. So I still fight, though I wish that would go away. Life would be a lot easier if I didn't have to have walls up everywhere. Next question. Am I pretty? I'm a high school sophomore, and I just don't feel pretty. I feel ugly and unattractive to boys. I don't know what's wrong with me. Boy, thanks for being honest. It all depends on what you mean by pretty. If you mean living up to the arbitrary and airbrushed standards of our world, can't answer that. If it means being voted homecoming queen or whatever in school, can't answer that. Can't answer this. I found the people that are most attractive are the people who are sexy on the inside. And I know that's a really cheesy thing until you actually meet one of them. And they're just totally at home in their own skin. Confident, secure, and totally aware of their own frailties. Right? You could look in a mirror and go, yep, hate, but for some reason, I'm not ashamed. So, I don't feel pretty. Well, I mean, the question, the cry of the heart, right? I don't feel noticed. I feel ignored. Here's what not to do. One, please don't pretend you don't feel that way. One of the worst things we do in church is teach people to pretend like they don't have the feelings they do. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? I'd, I would like to be attractive. Right? So would most of us. That's okay. I think somewhere in there is part of God's good design for romance and attraction. Hallelujah. I like it when my wife says, you really look good. Because it's very few <laughs> statements. So, is it wrong for you when you say, what's wrong with me? And you're shaming yourself for wanting to be pretty? That's not the way you handle it. It's okay to want to be pretty. It's okay to want to be delighted in. And to want to be affirmed. And to want to have some guy crazy over you. That's okay. It's okay. But it's not enough to build a life on. And so I would just simply say this. I would invite you, whoever you are, to have a conversation with some older sisters who could help show you what it looks like to build a life on something other than whether or not boys think you're pretty. Because our culture is going to say that's the most important thing. And it's easy for me to say, but for you to actually believe it, for us to actually be a community where ladies don't feel judged by the way they look, where it's totally cool whatever size you happen to be, where we're not going to play favorites with just the attractive ones and ignore the rest. 
I mean, high school, college, I mean, you've got an opportunity to do something beautiful. And that is to help our ladies build a life on something other than how they look. Far too many of us fail them in this way. We reward immodesty. We reward scandal. We reward the sexualization of our young ladies. And so part of what that question makes me do is just want to repent as a dude for letting a world exist where you feel like that. One more. I used to have an eating disorder and still have trouble with it. How can I see myself in God's image and distract myself from this problem? I'm so sorry. I'm just so, so sorry. You're not alone. Sitting in this room or other people who struggle with that too. I don't know. I just know people who could be more helpful to you than I. I won't pretend to know the struggle. My eating disorder has been on the too much variety (laughs) and not on the not enough variety. Still an eating disorder. It's still using food, right? Gluttony is just as damaging, right? Because it's the misuse of God's good creation. Would you, whoever texted this, would you come talk to me after? And would you allow me to help get you in a conversation with some folks who've been down that road? Because I I don't want to pretend like I know what deliverance looks like there. So here's what I want to do. Gentlemen, in two minutes, I'm going to invite you to stand up. And I'm going to want you to surround the entire room. Ladies, I want you to sit right there. And we are going to pray over you. All at once, out loud. Now, if you're a dude, and you're not a whole Jesus person thing fan, here's the great thing about praying. It's easy to fake. Okay? (laughs) So all you got to do is just close your eyes. And some girl is going to go, man, that that dude's godly or something, all right? So just don't worry about it. Easy to fake. But but here's the deal. For whatever reason, I feel an unbelievable weightiness to this. To these conversations we've been having, I don't know, it just wrecks me. And as I look out on some of your faces, I can just see the battle written on them. And I don't have a ton of good advice. I wish I had three easy steps for learning to trust God's definition of you. I don't. I'm still in process. But I do know it starts with telling a different story, and it starts with being a different community. And so we're going to get up, and we're going to pray over our sisters and go to war on behalf of them. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry, we're not checking identification before we (laughs) unleash you. So you can close your eyes or do whatever. All right, but ladies, all I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes and I want you to hear the voices of hundreds of men going to war on your behalf. All right? So you don't have to talk to your friends to do this. Gentlemen, get up and I want you to surround the room.
All right, all the way around. First of all, how many, how great is it that this many dudes are here? That's awesome, guys. Enough of this rubbish about how dudes don't like going to church. Throws your ear. Look at this. All right, stand in the middle if there's just no room for you. All right, hey guys, look at me. Let's just take this number of guys. How would Orange County be different tomorrow morning if we insisted on meeting women as image bearers and not as objects for consumption? I mean, how many households, how many relationships, how many workplaces? I'm just saying, I mean, this is... Jesus started a revolution with 12. So what would happen? So here's what I want you to do. Ladies, close your eyes. When I said look at me, it wasn't to you. Gentlemen, if you're comfortable, I'm going to invite you on the count of three to pray out loud over our sisters. And I want you to pray boldly against the slavery, the captivity of our world and the powers and principalities behind it that lie to them about their worth and their value, their beauty and their dignity. And ladies, I just want you to receive hundreds of male voices crying out to the God of the universe that you might be protected and that you might live in a different way. So guys, I'm going to count to three, and we're just going to pray. And we'll go as long as we need to go, okay? One, two, three. Mighty God, we come heartbroken over the lie. God, I just confess even my own sin. God, I confess and I repent and I pray, mighty God, that you would unleash your Holy Spirit. Oh, mighty God, that you would release your Holy Spirit and pour out on these sisters healing and deliverance. Oh, mighty God, we pray that you would come in mercy, you would come in power, you would come and release and you would come and heal. You would come and declare. You would come and affirm, mighty God. Oh, we bless you and we go to war on behalf of these sisters. Oh, mighty God, would you have mercy? 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 So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we ask You to come and wage war against the lies and the powers and the principalities that hold our sisters in captivity. And mighty God, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would be poured out and that You would release healing and that You would release deliverance and that You would release freedom. Mighty God, I pray that You would create 
in our sisters a hunger and a thirst for the kind of life built on something that is far different than the fleeting and arbitrary images of beauty that our culture declares to be worthwhile. And mighty God, as a group of brothers, we repent of the ways in which our eyes and our bodies contribute to the consumption of their skin. And we ask You, mighty God, for grace and courage so that our young women no longer have to ask if they're beautiful. So that the women who've given birth to children no longer have to worry about getting their pre-pregnancy form. And so that our older women are not ashamed of their wrinkles and their white hair, but see them as wreathed in glory and dignity. Father, we can't do this apart from You. We can't save from eating disorders. We can't deliver from immorality. We can't convince a heart that is lonely that it's beautiful. And so we beg You in the power of Jesus' name to come and to do work we cannot do ourselves and to give these children courage. Father, would You allow us to be a place where this is embodied and that true beauty is exalted and that grace is given to all of us who struggle with falling short. In the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Ladies. Ladies, your turn. Okay, men, go back to your seats. Ladies, you're surrounding and you can fake pray too. And then we'll close. So ladies, we want to surround. Our brothers. Imagine if a community started looking a bit like this. Okay, ladies, surround. Yep, we've got holes over here. Oh yeah, we want full room configuration. Dudes, go ahead and just sit down. <laughs> it's, what, it's what you're good at. Spoken as a guy who, if he had his choice, would spend all day watching football. Ladies, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to pray in the same way the guys prayed over you. And if you're not comfortable, no pressure. No one's going to judge you. If you just want to remain silent, it is just fine. But I would love and covet on behalf of our brothers your prayers in much the same manner we prayed over you. Our world bombards very visual men with images designed to cultivate lust all day long. 
And it seems impossible for some of us to actually be pure in heart. It seems impossible for some of us to not be ruled by physical desire and release. It seems impossible not to be pornographic and not to be sexually active. It seems impossible to relate to women as other than objects for gratification. And so we need you to pray over the married men that we would delight in the wives of our youth. And for the single men that their sexuality is something that's far more important than what culture says. And how they look at you and treat you is a direct reflection of how they understand what God is like. And so we want you to pray freedom and grace and courage for us too, okay? So I'm going to count to three, and then um, I'll close this representing the sisters. (laughs) All right? One, two, three. Mighty God, pray your blessing, pray your grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we ask that you would go to war on behalf of the men that are in this room. Father God, we pray for our brothers, that you would give them faith and courage, that you would release healing and hope. God, I pray particularly against those held captive by lust. God, we recognize that is a spiritual battle, not just a physical battle. And so we ask you, mighty God, that you would wage war to bring deliverance and freedom. God, if some of the struggles are like mine, the confession of the 400th time you've blown it can lead to such despair. And so God, I just pray simply for hope that there is a bigger story, there is a bigger power, there is a bigger thing happening than what is written in their biology. And God, I join with my sisters in their blessing of the goodness of what it is to be masculine. And we need these men to be men. We need them to be godly. We need them to fight for us. We need them to fight for a world in which 
young girls don't have to go on YouTube anymore. And God, we just need your courage. We need your deliverance. We need your grace. And so, Father God, would you bless them? Would you bless them? May they feel the hope of the risen Jesus as they go. And all God's ladies said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you, ladies. running. (laughs) My assumption, right or not, is that some of these conversations are stirring up some things that are incredibly painful. There are three things you can do with unfulfilled desires, whether you're not happy in a marriage whether you're unhappy as a single, whether you're unhappy not having sex, whether you're unhappy having sex, whatever it is, three options. Option number one is to pretend like you don't have the feelings you have. It's not a biblical option. Number two is to seek to escape those feelings. It feels great in the moment, but I feel awful afterwards. That's just an escape from a bit of the emptiness. That's not a biblical option either. What stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. If you live a life that you have to escape from, might I suggest that there's something wrong with your real life? The third option is simply this. Staying alive and thirsty. Feeling the weight of the emptiness. Not repressing it. Not denying it. Not escaping from it but having it again and again and again leads you to a place of desperation and crying out. I firmly believe God does some of his best work in those moments. You say, yeah, but I've been crying out for years and he's done nothing. I know. I get that it feels that way. I can't promise when his timing is going to feel right. I just know there's a bigger story being written. So, for those of you that are here and you're going, well, what do I do with an eating disorder? What do I do because I feel ugly? What do I do when it feels so good and I can't say no? Well, don't pretend like you're not feeling those things. But don't seek to escape them either. The paradox of following Jesus is that he will use that empty hole and that need for validation to actually drive you to him if you let it. I always feel so inadequate in these moments because of the pain written in a room like this. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to invite our care and prayer teams. 
our pastors, if you're here, would you just come up here? Would you go into that room? And we just want to say, if your marriage is in trouble, we want to pray. If your sexuality is in trouble, we want to pray. If you have an eating disorder, I want to talk to somebody. We just have all sorts of resources and people who would love to be with you in this. So, stand up. I know you just got comfortable again. I get it. Our care and prayer teams will be here for you if you'd like. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you. And may the Lord give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.